Hello, I'm Boyan First. And I'm Rebecca Cahoe. And you're listening to Rural Roots. A Harris Center podcast that asks, what is rural in the 21st century? And this episode is one of those special episodes that just kind of happens completely unexpectedly. Well, we did want to make something along these lines. True, uh, but we didn't really have any idea of where to start. And then Kevin met David. And the router just met. I, which is something I had no idea about. You thought they knew each other from before. I thought they were working together for years and years and years. Uh, just from the way they talked, but you know what? Uh, let's back up a little bit. I think we are confusing everybody who's listening to this. Probably so. And I mean, we could probably blame some of it on the ridiculously large lunch of chicken shawarma and the biggest order of fries we ever saw. <laughs> so I just want to apologize to, to all of our listeners. We are not operating. We're operating at post-lunch levels, folks. The good news is that I actually recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago. Right. Um, because you and your colleagues at the Office of Public Engagement here at Memorial University organized a conference called People, Place, and Public Engagement. A truly wonderful conference. Yeah, you can say that, but I can. It was a good conference, and it brought together people from all over the world. Yep, we had people from all across North America, from Australia, from the UK. And one of the panel discussions was a conversation between David Freshwater and Kevin Morgan, about innovation and regional development and how we can reduce the cost of service delivery in rural regions. And the two of them were great. And I missed that session. I did too. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is actually going then to come as a surprise to you as well. Um, I really wanted to talk to both of them because of their work in um, around the various rural issues. Um, Kevin Morgan is Professor of Governance and Development in the School of Geography and Planning and Dean of Engagement at Cardiff University in Wales. In and and I mean, this guy is, he's a lovely person, great conversationalist, and he's even worked, um, some people may f- be familiar with some of the food initiatives that Jamie Oliver has been involved in in the UK. Well. Kevin has been right involved in that, and uh, you know he pro- he could probably get Jamie to come and cook him dinner if he asked. <laughs> and then there's David. Yeah, so David Freshwater, we've also known for a long time. He's worked with the Harris Center on plenty of projects. He's a professor in the Department of Agricultural e- Economics at the University of Kentucky and the former head of the Rural Policy Program at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development in Paris. So Kevin as you said, has been doing a lot of work around food and sustainability and governance. And David has been working in rural innovation. I wanted to talk to them about those things, but our conversation took a completely different turn. So where did it end up? We and they ended up having this conversation about the relationship between the rural and the urban. Ooh, that's something we've wanted to do uh, an episode about for a long time, and it's something we talk about pretty much whenever we get together. We did, and I think this is the best introduction to that conversation we are ever going to have. So how are we going to do this? You know what? You know what? This is a 28-minute conversation. I'm going to play the whole thing for you. It's quite remarkable, and essentially, it's one single clip. I did no editing to this. Wow. I removed one awkward um 
and I accidentally dropped a microphone once. Uh, so <laughs> Cleaning up the, your own mistakes. <laughs> so those are the only two things that I took out of this. Wow. Okay, so what are we going to call this episode? I think we are going to call it the country mouse and the city mouse. Oh, boy. And I have dark teenage memories. Uh, I recall I must have been 13 years old. Um the Norwich United Church youth group was doing a trip to Toronto, the mean streets of Toronto. We were kids from a very small community. And of course, I wanted to prove my sophistication. And to my horror, in the subway in Toronto, the leader of the group called, come along, country mice, in front of all of the people in the subway. And I was totally humiliated. <laughs> And now you share this with thousands of listeners <laughs> on air. Awesome. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, so I think the country mouse and the city mouse is a story most people have heard before. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give us the quick version, Boyan? Um, there is a country mouse that comes to visit his um, city cousin. No, there's a city mouse that comes to visit his country uh, cousin and is not very impressed with the quality of food and how hard it is to actually get it. So he invites his country cousin to visit him in the city. And while the food might be plentiful, so are the cats. Uh, and the country mouse decides that the stress of a city life is really not worth it. It's that rural quality of life. It sure <laughs> is. But uh, let's, uh, let's listen to Morgan, uh, Kevin Morgan and David Freshwater. The rural economy and the urban economies are just coexist, but they're very different. And the OECD's the terminology is that, you know, there's the modern urban economy, and then there's these low-density economies, and I kind of pushed them into doing that over the last 15 years. And I, you know, I, and I think that's right, that the rural economy works in a very different way than, than the urban economy does. Innovation works very differently in rural areas than it does in urban areas, um, your opportunities are very different. Rural people sort of understand that because they they live their reality, but they see the urban reality. But urban people have no clue. Like the average urban person has no idea where their food comes from. They have you know they don't, <clears throat> you, most kids don't even know that milk comes from a cow. <laughs> and if you tell them, they even less likely they drink milk. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, in, in the UK and in large parts of Europe, but particularly the UK, uh, I would say that the dominant uh, spatial narrative in politics now uh, concerns cities and city regions how cities are reconnecting with their municipal hinterland uh, to create larger metro regions. And my concern is that that, that is al- almost the only narrative that is seen to be uh, fit for the future. It's the only narrative that is, uh, is, 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 uh, seems legitimate to absorb public funds. And, uh, you know, when I was a student years ago, uh, there, there were very strong rural narratives, and the debate was between urban and rural d- divisions. Now I think it's time uh, for us to, th- to to rethink that rural agenda, and I, I hope it's done in a way which doesn't reproduce the old binary, you know, between urban versus rural, and tries to think about interdependence, tries to think about. Uh, 
how you can get urban rural reconnections and my my because i'm not a, a i'm not a rural expert like david is but my work in rural areas uh, has stemmed from the fact that i do a lot of work on sustainable agri food systems and therefore i'm working with a lot of rural regions in the uk around food procurement for example because agri food is one of the key sectors for sustainable rural development so how do we change that narrative we talked about that yeah, yeah. before yeah i i think you you change the narrative by explaining to people how rural life really works um you know th- there's this sort of delusional thing that cities can produce their own food and you you can do you know you've got food in the box and vertical agriculture <coughs> and it's just silly it's just you know you you can produce all the microgreens that you might need to sell to high end restaurants but what are the poor people going to eat you know that's it is such a a rich person perspective on how the world works you know that's this sort of denigration of the basic food groups and and fairly simple restaurants as bad food you know, you know, i i'm no fan of most fast food places but if you're living on a low income that's what you eat because that's what's available and that's what you can afford and nobody wants to talk about that yeah 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 i i think if we think historically about the urban rural you know i i i think of uh, a, a very influential book for me was uh, the cultural critic in the uk a welshman as it as it happens but based in cambridge called raymond williams uh, who wrote a marvelous book called the the, uh, the country and the city looking historically at how they'd been uh, interdependent then the, the then the division of labor between them and then the stereotypes began to emerge you know and one stereotype as we know was 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 um, about rural idiocy that the rural was a backwater uh, some kind of antediluvian field of darkness and stupidity in, in uh, 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 juxtaposed to the city of light uh, the city of knowledge and so on and so forth but there's, then there's the other one which is the rural idyll <laughs> and the urban was, degradation I, 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 if he if he let me finish <laughs> I, i would have gone on and said but you can flip that you know yeah. And you can see the city as a parasitic uh, entity, uh, living off the back of of uh, you know uh, yeoman, yo women, fa- uh, fa- farmers, where the, the the rural area is, as you say, a, r- a rural idyll, and so on and so forth. I think what I think going going forward in the twenty first century, we need to we need to jettison these stereotypes. You know, they they, they are not they are not just wrong, but they're they're deeply offensive in terms of the the, the stereotypes and the prejudices that they appeal to and I, i would i would hope that we need to have narratives now narratives of, of what i'd con, co, co, call reconnection of real resilience where we begin to see the interdependencies you know i, I see business young business students they've bought into this uh, this guff about uh g- cities having more in common with themselves new york london shanghai that they now have more in common with each other than they do with their own countries and regions you know and and for a very very tiny slither of elite people 
th- that's, this may, may, be, may be true, or they, it may seem to be true for them. But for the vast majority of us, you know, uh, once a city is divorced from its region, you get the divorce uh, uh, and, and the forgetting of air quality, of carbon footprints, of deep interdependence, as David says, about who really feeds the city. Well, in many cases, it's the country, it's the region, uh, and where that's not the case, it's through imports in an unsustainable mode of development. And therefore, I actually think the rural narrative is essential to the future of the urban narrative if we're going to think about sustainable development in a resilient way, David. And I was going to ask you as an economist, you see that clearly, that interdependency. So why don't we see it in the cities? Well, most people aren't economists, would be the easy answer. Uh, but, but I think it's, it's um, because we see what we want to see, not the reality. Most people don't, you know, you, you tend to impose your lifestyle and your understanding on everyone, everywhere else rather than saying, okay, well, I live this way here, but if I was doing something else in a completely different context, I would be living a very different way. And, you know, I, I think the that Kevin's got it right, that there's, syn- there's synergies and it's just, it's really a story of comparative advantage. Rural areas do some things well. Urban areas do other things well. By specializing on those things that we they each do well, everyone gains. Yes, and you and you a point also though <coughs> that um, that urban children really need to appreciate uh, their rural hinterlands and their rural heritage, particularly with respect to food. The le- the level of ignorance about food and diet, you know, and food is is not like another industry. We we call it an industry, of course, but it can never be reduced to an industry because food, we ingest it. We don't ingest software. We don't ingest steel. It's a unique sector. You know, it's the most important. My kids say to me, it's not as important as as my iPhone. Right. And of course, <laughs> middle-class kids can say that because they've never known hunger. Ex- exactly so. So food is, is, a, is, is something unique. We need to learn to respect it again, and we need to res- learn to respect those who produce it. Not just primary producers, but also those involved in, in distribution and, and s- serving food. And we need to reconnect in deep cultural ways, and that's why kids need to get back to the source of the food. And I think, you know, for most of the existence of humanity, you didn't have to do that. You know, Kevin and my generation is the last generation of urban people who had rural roots. Most urban people now, particularly immigrants into North America, came from cities. And for them, farming is an abomination. I mean, they, they remember peasant farming, hardship, hardship and farming is, yeah, yeah, they have no desire to have anything to do with agriculture because agriculture was the backward sector in their, in their country. Here you tell people that farming's progressive, you know, you tell people that farming's progressive now and they scratch their heads, but the, the reason they're living in the city is because farming is progressive. <laughs> we don't need all those people producing food, yeah. which we needed for the vast bulk of civilization. Yeah. Uh, and and, th- and this is why we need to reclaim new uh, 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 new and old narratives about uh, the rural space 
uh, if you will, not, not, not just for food, but if you think of uh, there are farms in Europe, the Netherlands has led this, where, where, where they've developed new models of farming, uh, care farms, for example, where fa- f- farmers are paid by their national health systems uh, to help to repair uh, people who have been mentally had uh, mental illnesses, uh, drug addiction, for example, to help to heal people, because there's something about being close to dare I say it, you know, nature, yeah. animals, yeah. Uh, growing plants, uh, whether you're going to uh, rehabilitate prisoners. There, 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 there is evidence that being proximate to these processes, being involved in them, has a deeply a rehabilitating sense. So these are the values I think we need to reclaim if we're going to really counter the epidemic that we see of loneliness, uh, of mental health and stress, as as well as the challenge of you know a, uh, artificial intelligence destroying jobs, and so on and so forth. So the urban rural narratives need to be rethought. I think, and that's the big takeaway I think from our discussion is that. Um, the rural is as important to the urban if it's framed in an interdependent way. So you and I had a conversation about innovation that's happening in rural and urban places, but the benefits tend to accrue to urban places. And I asked, you know, that seems unfair, and I know that life is not fair, but could we make it a little bit more equitable? Is this the way to think about it? to transfer some of those benefits that are accruing in the cities back to the rural because it has another role to play? Well, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's an interesting question. And an urbanist would say that the principal benefit to rural people is this has created an opportunity for them to move from rural areas to urban areas. Okay. I'm a bit skeptical about that. Um, Newfoundland's a really interesting place because you've got a lot of people living in old in and outports that have lost their economic function. Government went through a resettlement process that was hugely unsuccessful. And it's unsuccessful because you're you're taking people out of a place they want to be where they can pretty much exist, maybe in a semi-subsistence way, and putting them into an environment where they can't exist with the resources they've got. their, Their asset, which is their home, has no value. They're never going to be able to afford to live in a place of their own in a city. They're not going to live in a a way they want to live in, like stuck in a 12-story box in a one-bedroom concrete apartment. It's it's not a, you know, it's a myth to think that these people are better off moved to a city. What about the other way around? Oh, I, I don't. I think a lot of urban people move to the country and then move back really fast, because they're they're different places. You know, you you don't move into a into a rural environment and become a member of the community right away. You you got to earn your membership, and you don't yeah. get to have all of the things that you had in the city right there and then. You've got to think a little harder about what it is you're going to buy when the nearest grocery store is 30 miles away. People do not grasp in urban areas how different rural is. Yeah. I, yeah. And I think that's, you know, the, there's the, 
as we started out, there's the people who view, view it as hell and there's the people yeah. who view it as heaven, <laughs> but it, it's somewhere in between. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. I mean, the big trend in, in the UK and the rest of Europe is, uh, is, is what I'd call municipal consolidation. I think in, in, uh, in Newfoundland, you, you talk about amal the issue about amalgamation. Yeah. The, the, these, these are important issues and there are trade-offs. There's no easy solution. If you're going to have a widely dispersed uh, settlement population settlement pattern, as you as you seem to have in in, in Newfoundland, there's there's an issue about how do you deliver uh, equitable services over over that territory, you know, uh, because increasingly people are aggregating together to deliver to design and deliver better services. That's 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 an issue. If you've got a widely di di uh, distributed pattern, it's more difficult and and more expensive. If you're prepared to accept the costs of that. The real cost of that, then, then so be it. But I think people have to be presented with the trade-offs in terms of costs and benefits. And from my own work, whether it's looking at small firms or small communities, as I said in the conference uh, earlier on today, the, the real problem isn't being small in this world. It's being lonely. It's being disconnected from networks. So you can be you can be a small firm, you can be a small community, but you need to be connected in smart ways. And I think that, that helps us to overcome the, the big versus small binary and getting beyond those stereotypes to get back to what David and I are talking about, about a positive forms of interconnectivity. Are there good examples? Yeah. yeah, okay. Here's a nice one. Um, there's a firm in western Kentucky. We got a lot of deer in Kentucky, probably more deer than people. And hunting's a, still a reasonably, really reasonably interesting thing. And there's a bow season where you hunt with a bow, and it's, a early, it's the first season because the, the deer are at least spooked by, at that point in time. Well, there's a guy who makes bow sights, just like a rifle sight, but it's for a bow. He's got a, a shop in his garage, and he sells those bow sights over the Internet. Every day, a UPS truck drives up. They load boxes of bow sights onto the UPS truck, takes it off to the UPS depot, and sells them. Now, it's a niche market. <laughs> the local market for that product is tiny, maybe 20 guys. The national market is huge. He's in business for life with four full-time employees making bow sights. Couldn't do that without the internet yeah. and UPS. But we have the internet and UPS now. So there's all of these opportunities to take firms that, can, that have a valuable, readily transportable, niche product and sell it everywhere. You know, Amazon is wonderful for them. You know, you, yeah. you know it, it's, it has increased the opportunities for rural areas in two ways. It's increased the opportunities in terms of the things that can sell, and it's increased the opportunities in terms of the things that you can buy. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, no, I, 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 I appreciate all, all those points. But, but I also think it, it would be wrong n n to think that uh, these places are you know, fairly autonomous places. We, the truth is we live in what, what academics call multi-level governance systems. In yeah. Canada, you've got one of the, the, the most developed in terms of the federal, the provincial, and the m municipal level. And it was said to me by a civil servant this week that uh, in Canada right now, uh, there's a problem because the money's at the federal level, 
the authorities at the provincial level and the real needs are at the local level. And somehow you've got to calibrate, you've got to synchronise these things. In Europe, we have a concept that we pinched from the Catholic Church uh, called um, subsidiarity. It's a horrible sounding word, even more difficult to say it. But subsidiarity simply means keeping power in decision making and resource allocation as close to the citizen as possible. And it's only it's only elevated to another level when that lower level is unable or unwilling to deploy it, which is a healthy principle, it seems to me. If you applied that to, to the Canadian system, presumably uh, more money would come down to the uh, local level or, or, or whatever. But when you've got needs, knowledge and budget uh, allocations all at different levels, it's a recipe for disaster, it seems to me. Yeah. Keep knowledge and resources as local as possible. That seems to me a pretty good design principle for a, a governance system. Yeah, and, and Canada's been pretty good about this thing called tripartite agreements, which are Fed, Prov, local. And they work really well in urban areas because urban areas have the capacity to negotiate with the provincial government and the federal government on maybe not a level playing field, but one that's not tilted too far against them. For rural, like a rural county or a rural mm. a community of 500 people that has a part-time council, no one, one worker who has basic bookkeeping skills, to pretend that they can play that game mm. is just ludicrous. So this is an example of where we need to have an innovation in public governance to find a way to get those places the resources they need to be effective, I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. But 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 here's the thing: uh, this is where stark choices face uh, people in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, if 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 you haven't got that capacity at the municipal level, as David says, exists in some uh, rural municipalities, then you need to acquire it. How do you acquire it? I I personally don't see a way of acquiring that without a modicum of consolidation or amalgamation. You know, and you do that not in a top-down way, this is how it's going to be, but you do it by the only way that's sustainable, in, in my view, which is winning hearts and minds. And presenting people with a stark trade-offs and costs. If you persist with the status quo, then you're always going to get a suboptimal solution. If you're prepared to live with that, so be it. But if you want better services, a more sustainable system, then we, we need to th have, as David says, some innovation in our, in our municipal governance. In, in Wales, we've done that through city regions, cities reconnecting with a regional hinterland. It's not a solution for all areas, but that's the, that's the trade-off that we've made uh, in, in our system. So when we step sort of a little bit higher, and we don't look just at the economy and governance, but we also look at things like rural areas still have cultural significance, identity significance. Sure. They have, in many ways, potential at least, to be environmental steward stewards of the region. Sure. What do we do with that? How do we incorporate that role <coughs> into the way we think about rural well, you know, there's uh, agricultural policy in Europe now has this idea of payment for environmental services. Public goods. Public goods, yeah. And it's, you know, there's a recognition that agriculture produces two kinds of public goods. One is the nasty shit, the 
the pet fertilizer runoff, the waste, the noxious gases, the things like that. The other one is that it produces a bunch of visual amenities. It produces wildlife habitat. It produces you know air quality, carbon sequestration. Da 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 da. It's any significant renewable energy site is in a rural area, not in an urban area. Uh, so, so there's all of the stuff that rural areas provide and are not compensated for at this point in time. So what that means they probably underprovide them. And environmental payments are a way to increase the provision. And they can be, you know, they, they can come, this can come in a number of ways. My favorite or one of my favorite organizations is Ducks Unlimited. Ducks Unlimited is made up of people who hunt ducks. People who hunt ducks have to rely on the ducks flying by. The ducks have to land in ponds that are on farmland. Farmers have an incentive to drain those ponds and turn them into cropland unless Ducks Unlimited pays them to keep the potholes in place, and which is what Ducks Unlimited does. So this turns out to be a win-win situation. Ducks Unlimited pays the farmer more than the value of that land in crops. Duck hunters get to shoot ducks. The ducks actually win because if the crops, if the potholes went away, the ducks would go away too because they wouldn't be able to make their north-south journey. So this is a, like this is a club good thing. This, the government's not involved in this at all, but there are all of these mechanisms that, if we're creative, innovative to, to coin a word, we can find solutions to these problems. And the, I think the, the the thing to focus on is not the methods when we talk, go back to governance, but the outcomes. Because the way you solve a problem in an urban area is probably right off the wrong way to solve that problem in a rural area. Oh, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. But, uh, but you, you know, drawing on my, my, our experience in Wales, one of the great problems we've had under devolution over the last 20 years is that Welsh government has, 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 has signally failed to discriminate in favour of good practice. That is to say, it has treated laggards and leaders the same. And wherever you get that system, you get state, the status quo and you've got, uh, you, you, you've got a situation which refuses to, uh, to, 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 to make poor performance pay. Uh, you know, poor performance has to have consequences. Yeah. For a, la- a lagging perform- if, if if a municipality is not hitting whatever agreed uh, targets uh, it's it's got, uh, whether it's in social housing or social care or wh- or whatever, then there needs to be consequences, and you need to put heat on that uh, yeah. municipality from above, from whether it's a provincial or federal level, and from below, from civil society. But we've got to have innovation in our governance system based on fair metrics and all the rest of it. But we we can't treat laggards and leaders the same. Yeah, because if you treat them the same, you have to adopt the lowest common denominator. And that gives nobody incentive to do anything. So, last question for both of you. Are you hopeful about rural? I, I, I am by nature an optimist. And, and therefore, I think when, when people are genuinely presented with, with uh, data-driven, evidence-based uh, solutions and options... Uh, and where they have the capacity to, to deliberate, to discuss this at community level, I'm optimistic that most of the time 
uh, they'll come up with with a with a good solution. Of course, there are some examples of democracy coming to democ- d- disastrous uh, solutions, uh, as Brexit shows uh, in the United Kingdom. So, but I'm I hope Canada can learn from our mistakes. Well, I'm by nature a cynic. <laughs> But I too am optimistic about rural areas because I'm cynical. You're a cynical <laughs> well, a, cyn- a cynic, a cynic is, is somebody who you know just sees life as it is in all its warts. <laughs> you know, I don't. But I think that the you know the the single biggest reason that rural areas I think will do well is that the people who live there have an incredible incentive to try and make their lives better, and. What we really need to do is first stop tying their hands and second talk to them about how we can best help them get to where they want to be. Because, you know, I think everybody at the end of the day wants the same thing. They, you know, we're, if we live in rural areas, we live in urban areas, we still want the same things. We want to live reasonably well. We want our kids to be yeah. successful and we want to live in a nice place. Our definition of nice might be a little different between between the two things, two different areas. But we're 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 all fundamentally in this game in the same way. We just need to get there from different paths. Yeah, and, and place is the biggest significant factor on people's uh, livelihoods and well-being. So everyone has an incentive to make their place uh, the best place it can be. Uh, but as David says, we, we need to create uh, regulations, incentives, and government policies which foster rather than frustrate rural development. <laughs> Sorry, agreement. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was fantastic. Well, that was very good. It was, wasn't it? And those two met that morning. So incredible. They never talked to each other before. Yeah. And what a start to our conversation about the country and city and rural and urban. Yeah, and I think we can make this only sort of the beginning of this conversation and just kind of build on it because Kevin and David, I want to bring them together at the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation conference Mm -hmm. and maybe we can convince our friend Zeta Cobb to join them on the stage and have a conversation about rural-urban interaction. I think that would be interesting. Um, But also we can start pulling on some of the threads that they kind of pointed us to. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have this notion of rural innovation the food connection governance issues the whole notion of changing rural urban narrative so i guess we have our work cut out for us i think we do and hopefully we won't be so tired next time we do this no more fries before recording and no late night reading either well as dr zhivago what do you do it was i just wanted a book i can just kind of fall into and it was quite amazing um so what an episode i know we heard from david freshwater agricultural economist from the university of kentucky and the former head of the rural policy program at the organization for economic cooperation and development headquartered in paris france And we also heard from Kevin Morgan, Professor of Governance and Development in the School of Geography and Planning, and also the Dean of Engagement at Cardiff University in Wales in the UK. As always, Rural Roots is a partnership between the Harris Centre, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership. 
We record the show at the CHMR campus radio station here at Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's. And you can hear all of the episodes of Rural Roots through our website, ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's Ruro, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. Or you can find us on your favorite podcasting app. You can also hear us on community and campus radio stations across the country. If you'd like your station to carry Rural Roots, just let them know. And they can find us on the Campus and Community Radio Program Exchange, or they can get in touch with us directly. I am Boyan Fierst. And I'm Rebecca Cahoe. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.